This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. Purdue Pharma, the company that made billions of dollars selling the prescription painkiller OxyContin, filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy protection earlier this week. The move came days after the company reached a tentative settlement with numerous state and local governments over the impact opioids have had in recent years. Some states have rejected the settlement and are continuing legal proceedings against the Sackler family, who owns Purdue Pharma. Various reports say the settlement is between $10 and $12 billion, with $3 billion coming from the the Sacklers themselves. But some feel that the Sacklers, whose net worth Forbes estimates to be $13 billion back in 2016, may be getting off easy. More than 47,000 deaths were attributed to opioids in each of the last two years, according to the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, and it remains a top crisis for many communities. With more on this, we are joined on the phone by Jonathan Lipson, who holds the Cone Chair and is professor at the Beasley School of Law at Temple University, and also joining us, Lindsay Simon, assistant professor at the University of Georgia Law School. Jonathan, Lindsay, thank you both for your time today. Happy to be here. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Good morning. Thank you. So, Jonathan, I guess kind of lay out some of the groundwork here as, as to what we will probably see with that Chapter 11 being filed. Sure. Well, the, the first thing I think that is top of mind for almost everybody who's focused on all of the, these cases is the effect of the automatic stay. Um, when Purdue Pharma you know, filed for bankruptcy at 11.22 on Sunday evening, um, uh, and it injunction, a nationwide injunction, went into effect, um, halting all litigation against the company, um, at least in theory. Um, For the non-settling plaintiffs, the state attorneys general and others who are suing Purdue Pharma, um, that's obviously a problem um, because they would like to continue their lawsuits outside of bankruptcy against Purdue and presumably the Sacklers. Um, Of course, the company's view is that, I think, they shouldn't be permitted to do this, that they should come back into, they should be forced to come into the bankruptcy estate. Um, so there are going to be fights about the, um, the application of the stay to these um, government actors, um, and there are going to be fights about the application of the stay to, um, to protect the Sacklers, who themselves are not debtors in bankruptcy and so presumptively are not entitled to the same protection that the company is. Lindsay, what do you see as the as the impact of this yourself of of all of this occurring at this point and the Chapter Eleven? Well, I think that it's long been in the news that a Chapter Eleven was at least part of the potential plan for resolving Purdue Pharma's issues. I think the fact that it's happened now, um, quite near an upcoming trial, is uh, again not a surprise to anybody. But I think the fact that we are in Chapter Eleven changes the momentum. It changes the incentive structure. It shifts a lot of power into Purdue's court because, again, the debtor in bankruptcy is the master of their case. And while there's a lot of approval that has to happen for things to go forward, they control the narrative at this point. And so, you know, I I agree the issue surrounding the automatic stay and whether uh, parallel litigation will be enjoined is a threshold issue that's very important. But all the while in the backdrop, it's an ongoing negotiation. Obviously, there are settling parties and there are non-settling parties, but the terms of any settlement is going to continue to shift over the course of the bankruptcy. And that's a feature of the bankruptcy process, not a bug. That's by design that that will continue to occur. 
And, and Lindsay, I've read a couple of reports that say, uh, and the $12 billion number that uh, has been thrown out there in terms of the settlement, there's also been some uh, reporting that that number may even uh, have the opportunity to go lower than that $12 billion. And I, I think that's a, a concern for a lot of people that are that are watching this from the outside. Well, I'll say, I think, at least based on what I've seen reported, obviously none of us have seen the terms of the settlement, and that's probably because it's still being adjusted and negotiated behind the scenes. I don't think anyone expects it to be $12 billion in cash. I think right. the, a lot of the valuation that's been reported comes from the public goodwill value of giving away drugs. And not to say that that's not valuable, but the new company is going to still have to pay to manufacture those drugs. So right. these numbers and the valuations are going to drop significantly in terms of actual dollars in the bank to be distributed. Jonathan? Yeah, I mean, part of what's interesting about this case is that I think Davis the lawyers for the for the debtor for the company are doing their best to try to make this look like a garden variety mass tort bankruptcy and there have been many of those really since you know manville and a.h robbins created the template for using chapter 11 to try to manage mass tort liability you know companies have been funding trusts or other mechanisms with their shares um, in order to satisfy creditors claims as and when they are determined in amount, um, and and that is, I think, at at heart, the the structure of what Purdue is going to try to do here. Um, what's different, of course, is that you have um, state, you know, actors, state governmental actors, in acting as plaintiffs, and they are at least going to take the position that they should be treated differently um, at the front end of the case. Um, and so, for example, they're not settling now, and they will undoubtedly say that they're not obligated to settle because the uh, there, there's an exception under the uh, bankruptcy code from this day for folks, uh, governmental entities, that are enforcing their police or regulatory powers. Um, not sure who wins that argument. I suspect they ultimately will come into the process. Right. Um, I think they will be forced in one way or the other. And then the question will be, um, what happens in the plan? Um, you know, certainly there will be lots and lots of negotiation. And right now, I think everybody is simply jockeying for position and trying to exert as much leverage as they possibly can. So the non-settling creditors staying out of bankruptcy is is probably the, the best strategy that they can employ. Lindsay, I think also a lot of people are, are, are wondering what is going to be the status of Purdue Pharma itself, uh, of the company. Uh, Steve Miller, who's the CEO, the current CEO, said that the best way to battle the opioid crisis is for the company to stay open. Right. And again, I've seen uh, the debtor in this pleadings will suggest that all of the assets and basically the core of Purdue Pharma is going to be created into this new entity that is serving a trust purpose rather than a for-profit purpose. We haven't seen the contours of that because the plan isn't on file yet, but assuming the company exists in that structure, there's some intuitive appeal to the fact that Alive, the company continues to bring in proceeds that can continue to fund the various initiatives of the trust. That being said, I think it's very clear that part of the concern with this company continuing to do business is that profiting off of continuing opioid sales is going to help pay off the previous harm. So this right. harkens to the tobacco cases where continuing tobacco sales helps pay for the settling amounts to tobacco claimants. So well, if, I, if I can I, jump in here, I think yep. I could be wrong, but I believe that Purdue has said that they are not going to continue to manufacture opioids. And in fact, I think they're seeking an injunction from Judge Drain in New York, um, sort of imposing on themselves, um, you know, the, the restraint the, of an injunction, prohibiting them from 
doing that. And I think so. So whatever they're going to be selling, I think will be something else. And I don't know enough about the businesses because they're private to know exactly what they would plan to do in the future. But I think the idea is that you know, like. Manville and, you know, every asbestos company, you know, in history, they're yep. going to continue operations in order to fund whatever payouts there are. Right. And, and I think, Lindsay, going off of a point you were mentioning a second ago, whatever trust would be set up, I think the expectation of, of a lot of the, uh, the attorneys general that are involved in this and probably a lot of people that have been impacted this is that whatever benefit there comes from the trust, it should be put back into uh, some form of, of, of treating the the crisis that is uh, that is across America right now. Well, and I think I think especially as evidence the first day hearing yesterday has been carefully put out in all the pleadings. The debtors representatives they're making very clear that that's the approach here. They are doing everything at least at this point from a public facing perspective to show that that's the goal. So the you know again everyone's saying well let's let's not focus on the past let's not focus on the other harms let's focus on what we are doing today to move forward and make things right and whether you believe that that's the right approach or not. I right. think everything we've seen so far is consistent with trying to make sure the profits do go to fund those things. So, Jonathan, how do we d- distinguish the the role in this of Purdue Pharma in comparison with the Sackler family uh, and, and the profits that they have taken out of the company and, and put into into various locations around the world? Um let me, go, let me, I'm happy to answer that yep. in conjunction with responding to something that Lindsay just said. Um, I think she has said, well, you know, counsel and other representatives for the company, they are trying to, you know, act in the public interest. And that, in fact, is the goal of the settlement and the goal of the Chapter 11 reorganization process. Maybe, right? I think that is certainly possible. However, um, I think it is well worth considering the fact that the Sacklers themselves are probably going to view themselves as being beneficiaries of this process if it, you know, takes form in certain ways. Right. And so, so, you know, for example, extending the state to protect them from litigation would be an enormous benefit and is going to be a difficult question for Judge Drain to answer in this case because the Sacklers are not like the ordinary third parties who get the benefit of a stay, um, you know, for a bunch of reasons, including the fact that, you know, typically when we do that, we do it because the you know the, the the beneficiaries are you know managers, directors, officers responsible for reorganizing the company. Here, the Sacklers have said we're out, and so while it is true they're putting three billion dollars in or whatever, we don't know exactly what they're putting in. Um, you know, it's also true that the states that are not settling may think that they have the ability to recover far more than that through a litigated process outside of bankruptcy um, from the Sacklers. And if that's the case, then, you know, obviously the Sacklers, the, the bankruptcy is very important to protecting the Sacklers in addition to advancing whatever public interest goals um, the company may now have in mind. But as you both have mentioned, we still have the Ohio case uh, kind of looming at this point, Lindsay. And I think a lot of people are wondering how all of this could have some impact on on what's going on or what will be going on out in Ohio in a courtroom. Well, I think the the fact that Purdue has now filed and has settled with, is my understanding, the plaintiffs in the MDL, I think it removes Purdue from that conversation, yeah. separate and apart from whether there are these ongoing joint and several liability issues. But, I mean, the other defendants, these defendants in the opioid MDL, they 
are settling leading up to this trial date. And I think that's what Judge Polster had in mind. I don't know. I mean, perhaps this removes one more big player from the table, and so yeah. everyone still remaining in that trial will be looking around and evaluating their options as well. Jonathan? Yeah, I think I, I think that's right. I think that there are a, a couple of, of, of um, twists here, though. Think about it. The first is that Oklahoma just got, you know, half a billion dollars at trial before a judge, yeah. right? And so if I am the attorney general of, say, Pennsylvania, right, I might find it difficult to capitulate to the settlement that is on the table. Um, because, you know, when I run next for re-election, people are going to ask, well, why did you, why did you knuckle under? You know, right. o- Oklahoma's just gotten half a billion dollars. These are elected officials, and they are sensitive to that stuff. And, of course, I think, you know, they are dealing with, you know, a massive public health crisis. So, so it's going to be tough for them to stay out. And, you know, I don't know anything in particular about the Sacklers, but certainly in the media, they are not portrayed as the world's most um, sympathetic yeah. defendants. Yeah. And, you know, having transferred a billion dollars, apparently, you know, about 10 years ago <laughs> to a Swiss bank account, you know, it may or may not be recoverable in bankruptcy. Um, probably it's not, but who knows. Um, but, you know, like, I don't want to be a defendant if I'm the Sacklers. So I very much want the bankruptcy process to protect me if I can. Well, and even the Oklahoma case, I think, becomes important, as you said, for for some of the other state's attorney general or state attorneys general, excuse me, um, is because there's an estimation that that half a billion dollars may have been less than what they probably should have gotten uh, in that settlement because of how vast this this problem is around the country, this crisis is, and not only just uh, how much money and finance has been lost by people and, and by companies up to this point, but how much more is going to have to be paid out to be able to correct a lot of these problems. Right, which raises two other, other issues. The first is that bankruptcy you know, is certainly an invitation to a negotiation, as you know, yep. Senator Warren says in her casebook. Um, but it is also a process for very rapidly determining the amount um, of un, you know, unliquidated claims, right? So all of these you know, plaintiffs right now, the, the states, they, we don't know how much they're owed. That's why they're going to trial. They may not be owed anything. But bankruptcy would significantly expedite that, and it's not at all difficult to imagine Purdue you know, creating or trying to create proceedings, procedures that might you know, not favor the, the states in determining the amount um, that they're actually owed. So I think that the, you know, when Lindsay says that the, that the debtor in possession remains, you know, has a lot of power, that's true, and this is one of the reasons. Um, I think the other thing that's in, I'm sure, in the minds of, of all of the observers here, especially the state attorneys general, is that whatever happens here, right, is going to set a certain kind of precedent. Mm-hmm. Um, and so others with pharma exposure, opioid exposure, um, I think are going to, you know, look at whether it's successful for Purdue in making decisions about, you know, how they should um, proceed in, in the future. And so there's a, there's a great deal at stake. It is, a, you know, a very high-stakes game of poker for, for, for everyone at this point. Lindsay? I just want to add to that, taking a step back to the Sacklers and what they stand to gain from this. Something that we haven't discussed yet is the fact that in all of these parallel litigation cases throughout the country, we have discovery going forward. And there's at least rumblings that there may be potential criminal liability against the Sacklers under various states and or federal law. 
if the Sacklers can prevent and or disclose what they need to to stop the the discovery hunt or at least slow it down, they may be able to insulate themselves at least to some degree against further criminal liability, which wouldn't be impacted by the bankruptcy case. So how will then also, Lindsay, in, in this process, uh, the companies that, that are owed money of, of Purdue Pharma, how will they be able to, and I think from, from past bankruptcies, the expectation is, is that they're not going to be able to get a dollar-for-dollar dollar value. They would be able to get a, a portion of what they are owed going through the bankruptcy process, correct? Uh, I think that's correct. So, you know, whether the states that don't agree the settlement are given permission to resolve their claims outside of bankruptcy or they're resolved inside bankruptcy, at the end of the day, they'll be reduced to a claim, an amount that they're owed. And the group of claims collectively, however many there are, are going to be resolved in the plan of reorganization. And whatever that plan says about what each state and or claimant will receive is what they will get. And given the estimated dollar value of claims and the estimated assets available in the settlement, even in the most generous terms, there's not enough money to give everybody a hundred cents on the dollar. So I think it's an absolute reality in this case, as it is with many bankruptcy cases. Jonathan? Yeah, I think that's right. You know, bankruptcy is a game of fractions and, you know, we don't really know the numerator or the denominator here, but the numerator will be the ongoing value of the company. Um, whatever that is, and, and, and it's, I think, highly speculative at this point, or at least somewhat speculative. And the denominator is going to be, you know, the, the amount of unsecured claims. Um, there is certainly precedent for companies going into bankruptcy that actually end up paying 100 cents on the dollar. I think that was, you know, what happened in Manville, and I think there was a fight about whether, you know, the unsecured creditors there were owed interest, um, even though, you know, there was yeah. no specification of that in the contract. Um, so it's super difficult to know exactly what the what the payout is likely to be, but certainly um, I think it's reasonable to expect that it will be you know pennies on the dollar um, for the unsecured creditors. So what kind of a timetable then are we looking at, Jonathan? Here for the for the bankruptcy. So um, uh, the management of Purdue Pharma get 120 days exclusively um, to propose a plan of reorganization, which is the goal of this whole thing. Um, unless they get into serious trouble and they are removed um, and a trustee is appointed or some you know, other really bad thing happens. That's probably not going to happen here. Um, you know, after that, they, if they are able to propose the plan that time or get the, that period of time extended, which is difficult, um, you know, they will continue to, to negotiate um, for um, sufficient number and amount of creditors um, to vote affirmatively for the plan. And if they can get that, then, then you know, the settlement will presumably be embodied in the plan. It will be implemented by the plan, and folks will go on about, about their lives. Um, but, you know, this is, I think the dynamics of this case are tricky, and so it wouldn't surprise me at all if some state attorney general comes in and says, well, at minimum, we would like to see an examiner appointed, because we don't really have any idea what's going on with this company. Right. Um, and so, yeah, maybe we can stay the litigation, you know, litigations around the world, but for goodness sake, we need to know what was going on here. And, you know, the Bankruptcy Code, <laughs> Section 1104 says, you know, actually in any large case, right, examiners are you know, supposed to be appointed. They, yeah. They're very rare. But, you know, you can have an examiner poking around and all of a sudden all sorts of things can come out. And, you know, then suddenly the settlement that currently exists may change. And, you know, many, many other things could be off the table, including the ordinary timing that you would expect. 
We're joined by Jonathan Lipson of uh, Temple University, Lindsay Simon of the University of Georgia. Your comments are welcome at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. Or if you'd like, send us a comment on Twitter at BizRadio132 or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. We're talking about the filing of bankruptcy by uh, Purdue Pharma over the weekend. Again, 844-942-7866. Or if you'd like, send us a comment on Twitter at BizRadio132 or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. I think, Lindsay, the the other element to this, and obviously the the finance part of this is is a significant piece because of the impact that that this has had on the country, and there's so many people that have been impacted by this over, over the last several years. But you still have the fact, and I, and I think a lot of people, if you were to ask them walking the street today. What is the responsibility in this whole process of all of the deaths that have occurred through this process over the last several years? I think that's the broader public crisis question that many people are asking. So the bankruptcy code provides structure and the process provides a forum to do the best that can be done with a company that has no other option. But the decisions that are made and the proposals that are put forward are going to do their best at addressing that question, but at the end of the day, we don't really know. And so what I can say is at this point, once the contours of that settlement come forward, once the terms of whatever trust structure they create are identified, we can begin to put together the building blocks of what relief and what justice may look like in this case. And only then, I think, can we evaluate whether that is sufficient and whether that is doing enough to address what has happened. Jonathan? Right. I think that's true. And I think there are two things in addition to think about. Um, the first is the tobacco master settlement agreement um, from, I don't know, nearly 20 years ago. Yep. Um, you know, the other states say, well, we have Medicaid claims and, because, you know, big tobacco. And so, you know, we're going to sue. And they sued and they, you know, settled. And we're going to use the money to help people, you know, with tobacco-related illnesses. And of course, some states did do that, but many didn't. They just dumped the money into their general fund. So you can understand why um, you know, pharmaceutical folks who are being sued by state and local governments today might say, well, you know, yeah, there's a crisis, but in fact, if, if we settle with you or you know, we lose, like, are you actually going to do anything about it with what you get from us? Right. Um, you know, I think that um, the, the sort of the, 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 the broader social issues here are in some respects beyond the scope of what the bankruptcy court can can deal with because the the work of bankruptcy is to reduce all of these problems to dollars and cents um and so you know it's 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 those dynamics will definitely affect um, how people behave, but it's going to be difficult, um, you know, f- I think, for anybody to feel like bankruptcy is going to produce um, outcomes that make everyone happy. Jonathan, Lindsay, thank you both for your insight today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Jonathan Lipson at uh, Temple University here in Philadelphia. Lindsay Simon at the University of Georgia Law School. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.